0: Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview, or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. Good morning. Thanks for being here. We're, we're going to move on. Uh, we're doing a series in the Gospel of John, and we're moving on. To John, chapter four. Today, uh, this is a story of a time when Jesus ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time uh, with the wrong people. It reminded me of a time that that happened uh, to us on a family vacation. Uh, we were driving down to Southern California and thought it'd be really fun to go through San Francisco, which is one of my and Laura's favorite cities to visit. We were taking the kids and we're getting uh, we're getting up to the Bay Bridge and. The gas tanks running a little bit low, and the traffic going into San Francisco across the bay was pretty heavy. And I remember thinking, the last place I want to run out of gas is in the middle of the Bay Bridge. So I thought, well, we'll just hop off the freeway here right before the Bay Bridge, and we'll fill up at a gas station, and then we'll be on our way, and it'll be great. And so we jumped off the freeway, and we pulled into this little gas station. And um, I, I mean, I knew I was in Oakland, but but there's bars on the windows of the gas station, and it's looking a little sketchy. And uh, so I go in, I pay for the gas. We we decide we got to get back to the freeway, and we realize we can't just get back on the freeway. It's one of those exits where there's not a convenient return, and so we end up just doing a little tour of of Oakland, California. And uh, we were definitely not tough enough to live there. Um, thankfully, we made it back eventually. But you know, here we are. This. Middle class, white family driving down the road and people are looking at us like, you guys are not in the right place right now. You do not belong here. Yes, you're right. We don't. We'll continue on our way. Um, John chapter four is one of my favorite stories in scripture because it's a story about Jesus intentionally going out of his way, intentionally showing up in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people, um, going there and meeting what was the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And I love it because it's a story of of Jesus Christ and really God reaching out into the circles that are outside of God's covenant people intentionally in order to bring people inside into the middle of what he was doing. Um, I, If you've been at Renewal for any length of time, you know that I love stories of God using outsiders uh, to be a part of his, his purposes. One of the reasons that I really love those stories is because I, I know enough about Scripture that when I read it, I know which box I belong in. I belong in the outsider box. I'm, I'm not a Jew, I'm not an Israelite, You know, I'm eons of time removed from the stories of, of the days that Jesus walked here on earth, and I, I couldn't be farther from God's, Covenant people, but for the fact that Christ came with a mission to include outsiders like me into the story. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a story about God reaching out through the nation of Israel in order that He would bring back to Himself people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Uh, And so this is a story about Jesus reaching outside to those who were once far away and bringing them inside. It's a powerful story for me. So I've had this date circled ever since I first scheduled out the Gospel of John series. I'm like, I cannot wait to talk about the woman at the well. Um, I've been excited about this. And of course, as I start digging into this over the last week, week and a half or so, I'm like, oh man, there's way too much here for one Sunday. And so I don't know what your guys' Father's Day plans are, but I thought we would just talk for about four hours about John chapter 4. And hang out here, everyone's okay with that, right? Um, There's way too much here for one Sunday. But, you know, we have a plan to, the week after next, start talking about Jesus' disciples. Uh, It's a good thing that we had a number of families and people from the church running around the county yesterday, rounding up Jesus' disciples. Susie put together an awesome scavenger hunt for us. And um, how many of you were able to find all 12? How many of you found all 12? Yeah, a few of you, that's right. Um, There was a little bit of trash talk, the Robinson's family car was a little bit ahead of ours, and they were chattering out the window as they would drive away from each stop. It was a a little, I'm a little hurt about it, I'm confronting you here in front of everyone. Somebody may have tried to block them in at one stop so they couldn't get away, so maybe it's not all unwarranted, but um, anyhow, we got all 12 disciples, we've got them gathered, we're ready to start that series this summer, so, um, so today we're not going to get a whole lot of this story done, and I'm excited because now I've got the fall circled on my calendar, and we'll come back to John chapter 4 uh, sometime after the summer break. Um, anyhow, though, we're going to take the first bite today. So, turn your Bibles to John chapter 4. Um, I had in my notes to pause for the sound of rustling pages, but I didn't hear anything. Just pausing, those no pages. Oh, man. Yeah, you guys. All right, turn your Bible apps to John chapter 4. Uh, John chapter 4, verse 1, really, we read that now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. Uh, we're opening up chapter 4. We're hearing about the Pharisees seeing the growing prominence of Jesus' ministry, um, but we have to remember as well that this is, this is chapter 4, which comes right after chapter 3. And of course, when John wrote this, there was no split between chapter 3 and 4. Uh, he wrote it as one continuous thought. And so uh, let's use our brains just a little bit to try to connect this story to last week's story. Uh, so I'm just going to throw this question out there. Does anyone remember last week's story? What was the controversy? What's that? Yes, yes. There was some controversy between John's disciples and they come to John the Baptist and they're like, man, Jesus is baptizing more disciples than us. Everyone's leaving our ministry to go over there. Um, I think it's interesting uh, when Eugene Peterson wrote the message version of the Bible, which is a paraphrase of Scripture, he really leans into that theme that that what he sees happening here is not just a controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees, but a potential controversy between Jesus, the Pharisees, and John the Baptist. And uh, uh, anyhow, we know that uh, John the Baptist responded to the controversy of Jesus is growing greater than you by simply saying, hey, he must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist knew that his whole ministry was to point to Jesus and he was totally okay with Jesus becoming more famous and a more popular preacher than he was. Now we can contrast that with the Pharisees' uh, perception of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees were, the, were a group of religious leaders in, uh, in, uh, in Jewish society of that day and they were not okay with Jesus becoming more popular than they were. They were not okay with his gains in influence and all of that. Um, Jesus recognizes this precarious situation he's in where there's controversy with John the Baptist. There's controversy with the Pharisees. And in verse 3 we read that he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Uh, I've got a little map uh, for you to look at here. Uh, so Jesus responds to the controversy by just getting out while the getting is good. Maybe there's a lesson in there for some of us. Verse 4, it says, Now he had to go through Samaria. And if you look at a map, that makes sense. We've got Jerusalem, which is Judea. He was down in that area to start with. And he's heading uh, north, to, back to Galilee, back to Nazareth. And, uh, and as you can see, the shortest distance between those places is a straight line. There's a little free physics lesson for you. Shortest distance between two spaces, straight line. Um, And so you might think, yeah, of course, he had to go through Samaria. That's the shortest way. He's walking on foot. Why would he go any other direction? But the reality is that Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. In fact, he normally wouldn't have. And it's not for geographical reasons. But in Jesus' day, it was much more common for good Jews, rabbis especially, to cross over, take a road to the east of Jerusalem, cross over the Jordan River, go up through what was not Samaria, and then cross over to come back into, uh, into Galilee. And the reason for that is because the region of Samaria was considered one of the last places that a good Jew would ever find themselves. Mostly because of the people who lived there. Does so anyone want to take a guess at who lives in Samaria? Samaria. The Samaritans, very good, very good. We are such a smart church. Um, The Samaritans are there. And the Samaritans and Jews had a lot of history with each other. If you're not familiar with it, I'll go into it just a little bit. Uh, Samaria is inhabited by Samaritans, and they're people who claim their ancestry from the ten northern tribes of Israel. So... uh, the nation of Israel, the family of uh, Israel, is called out of Egypt as slaves. There's 12 tribes. They all cross the wilderness together. God takes them into the promised land. Uh, they live there as, uh, through the period of the judges and then the first couple of kings. Uh, but then something happens after Solomon is gone. The nation split, and you've got two nations of Israel now, 10 tribes in the northern part, And two tribes in the southern part, including Judah is the prominent one. So this is now called the kingdom of Judah. You've got two different nations. And in the 8th century before Christ, the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes, were conquered by the Assyrians and taken away. Only not every single one of them was taken away. There was a remnant of Israelites left in the land by the Assyrians, And those Assyrians also brought in captives from their other conquered territories to resettle the land. This was part of their uh, peacemaking policy for conquered nations. And and the Samaritans ended up being the descendants of the original remnant of Israel that was left there and the new conquered people that came in. Uh, These are who the Samaritans were. They rebuilt a society. They intermarried with the other settlers And um, they probably intermarried with maybe some leftover Canaanites as well. But they ended up rebuilding a culture and a society, and their culture was centered around the worship of Yahweh, just like Hebrew society, just like, uh, sorry, Jewish society was. Uh, They worshiped the Hebrew God, and in their minds, they saw themselves as people who had stayed true to the worship of God the whole time. In their minds, they saw themselves as the faithful remnant of God's covenant people who were left in the land. They'd survived the exile, and they were here uh, worshiping the Lord. Uh, About 150 years after the Assyrians conquered the 10 northern tribes, the last two tribes get conquered by the Babylonians. And so they come in, and they take the kingdom of Judah away into captivity, and Judah's in captivity in Babylon for around 70 years. And then the Jews get to come back out of Babylon, and they come back to Jerusalem, and they are given the task of rebuilding a temple to Yahweh. Uh, we covered this story in uh, when we did a rebuilding series a couple of years ago. Uh, but this crazy thing happens. The Jews come back to the land. They're getting ready to build the temple. And, uh, and this line shows up in the book of Ezra saying that the enemies of, the, of, of Israel— came to them and offered to help them build the temple. So the people who are living in that region come to the Jews when they come back and say, can we help you build the temple? They say, we've been, we've been here in the region following Yahweh for 200 years, and we heard you're building a temple to them, and we want to help out. Uh, of course, these, who are these people? These are the remnants, the descendants of the 10 northern tribes that were left over and, and the people who'd brought in. They say to the Jewish leaders who come back to build the temple, look, we've got our own society here. We've been worshiping Yahweh ourselves. Can we help build this temple? The Jewish leaders are really perplexed by this offer to help build the temple from you know, who would be their enemies. Uh, keep in mind, these people are the descendants of uh, the ten northern tribes of Israel. We just finished a, a series on the book of Judges. Who was Israel's worst enemy in the book of Judges? It was Israel. These are, the, these are the guys. These are where brothers have been killing brothers. Cousins have been killing cousins. These are their enemies. They're descendants of their enemies. These northern tribes of Israel. They're also the descendants of these Assyrian you know, transplants. Uh, and Assyria is an enemy as well. And so they're perplexed by this idea that their enemies would come and offer to help build a temple to God. But they... They, of course, remember their the Jewish leaders' minds are brought to the words of the prophet Isaiah, who had talked about before they went into exile, the prophet Isaiah said, When God restores your fortunes, when he brings you back to the mountain and he, he restores you as a nation, his house is going to be called a house of prayer for all nations. And so, inspired by that idea, that, that realizing that God wanted them to build a house for all nations. They said to these enemies who were coming to offer to help, they said to them, yeah, there's a lot of work to do. We would would really like for you to help help us build a house of prayer for God for all nations. Any of you remember the rebuilding series? Is that how it happened? That was not how it happened. No, they didn't say that at all. Uh, We can read in Ezra chapter 3, Zerubbabel, Joshua, the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered this offer. They said this, You have no part with us building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So the Samaritans, as it were, they weren't called Samaritans yet, but the Samaritans come and say, Can we help you build a temple to Yahweh? And Israel says, No way. You have no part in this. We're going to build this temple just like Cyrus, the king of Persia, told us to. Wait a minute. Are they building the temple for God by God's command? Or are they building the temple for themselves per Cyrus's instructions? This is where you can see the the problems that happen when uh, a state-sanctioned venture is taken on by the church. Anyhow, when God speaks through his prophet, he says this new temple is going to be a house of prayer for all nations. And yet when God's people speak... To the nations they say, you have no part in us." So as the story progresses, these local residents that who would become the Samaritans, they're turned away from helping to build the temple, they soon give themselves to discouraging the role the, the ro- uh, sorry the work of the people in, in rebuilding the temple. they settle into roles of, of critics and discouragers of the Jews and uh, and for the next 600 years or so you have a lot of animosity between the Jewish people who came back from Babylon and the Samaritan people who had been there, uh, again, by their account the whole time. So the Jews have chosen to worship God in Jerusalem at the new temple that they've built. Uh, The Samaritans picked a different location to worship God. They picked Mount Gerizim. Now, Mount Gerizim wasn't just picked at random. This is the mountain where God had originally led Joshua to gather the nation of Israel when they first came into the promised land and to make a covenant with God there. This is a mountain that God had chosen and said, this mountain represents the blessings of staying true to God and following him. It was the first center of religious worship of Yahweh when the nation of Israel first came into the promised land. Keep in mind, they didn't even have claim to Jerusalem until King David came along hundreds of years later. So they, they didn't just choose this place by mistake. In the valley below Gerizim, there's Shechem. It's, it's an ancient city, and it's near this city by some oak trees that Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, initially made covenant with God uh, all those years ago. That was where God had promised to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land that you see. It was in the valley below Mount Gerizim. Uh, it's nearby where Jacob dug a well and where he had a a claim to land and God met him in that place. And it's also near that same location that Joseph's, uh, one of Jacob's sons, uh, bones are buried. So anyhow, the Samaritans had all these good sort of historical, cultural reasons to say this is the center of religious worship. In fact, they saw the fact that their ancestors had worshiped on the mountain all of this time, even before the nation of Israel was the nation of Israel, they saw that as a sign that they were staying true to God and the Jews were on the wrong side of history. They were just a bunch of compromised, Babylonianized fakers, right? So we have these two factions of God's people claiming to worship the same God but doing it in different places, in, in different sort of cultural techniques. And, and this is why good Jews, faithful Jews, would never be caught dead in this region hanging out with Samaritans. These are the people who are on the wrong side of history. And what's even worse, they stand on the wrong side of history and accuse us of being on the wrong side of history. You can see the problem here. This is why when the Gospel of John's original audience would have heard those words saying he had to go through Samaria, their ears would have perked up. What is he talking about? Why would anyone have to go through Samaria? It would have sounded scandalous. Why on earth would Jesus go to Samaria? And when they say, why would he go there? They don't, they're not looking for an answer. That's an, an emotional response. It's like uh, in, in the spirit of Father's Day, any of you who have ever raised children you, or, or have been responsible for children, you know that at times they'll respond with that question, why? And maybe sometimes they mean it as a genuine question, but most of the time they're protesting the injustice that they're suffering right now why do I have to clean my room? Oh my gosh, if you ask that one more time. Why do I have to eat my vegetables? Why do I have to go to bed right now? A book that I read in the last year is called The Anatomy of a Soul, and in it, the author, it's a book about brain science and spirituality, but the author, Dr. Kurt Thompson says, when we ask the question why, we're not so much looking for a left brain explanation, we're not looking for a rational explanation, That's generally the answer to our how questions. How does this work? When we ask why, we're seeking validation for feelings that we feel that are far too overwhelming to be understood. Why did my loved one die when they did? Why is there suffering in a world where God is good? And we don't ask these questions looking for good answers. In fact, if people try to give you good answers when you're asking those kinds of questions, usually you just get more upset at them. Usually it feels like your good answers are the dumbest things I've ever heard. When we say why, we're not, in in this scenario as well, they're like, why would Jesus ever do this? They're not looking for reasons that he would do it. They're just stating how offensive this is. Remember other times when Jesus would find himself in the wrong place? at the wrong time. I'm reminded of when he called uh, his, uh, one of his disciples, Levi. We'll talk all about him this summer when we talk about the disciples. He calls Levi, who is also called Matthew. He's a tax collector. Jesus goes to his booth. He says, come and follow me. And so Matthew follows him, and then he invites Jesus over for dinner. And, and then Jesus is having dinner at Matthew's house with his disciple and with these other tax collectors and sinners, and they all come, and they're all eating together together. And when the Pharisees saw this, this is out of Matthew chapter 9, uh, picking it up in verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Do you think they were looking for a rational answer, and if the disciples gave him a good answer, they'd be like, okay, next time the tax collectors invite me to dinner, I guess I will, because that just makes sense. That's not at all what they're looking for. They're saying this thing has happened, and we can't we are so upset by it. We, this defies rational explanation. Why on earth would this happen? Jesus' answer was really interesting. Verse 12, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he continued, he said to them, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. They didn't like the idea of Jesus eating with sinners. I doubt that they liked their homework assignment much more either. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And by the way, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. What does that mean for us? That the Savior we follow is not here to call righteous people, but here to call sinners. What does that mean about (laughs) means we should all have a cell phone ring like that, right? Only a sinner would have a cell phone ring like that. And not turn their phone on silence when they come to church where all the righteous people are. Maybe it means we're in good company here, all right? I think we're, we don't even need to harp on this point. All right, we'll move on. I would argue that the same reason that Jesus has dinner with tax collectors is the same reason that he had to go to Samaria. He could cross over the river. He could journey north on the highway that all the other Jews are hanging out on, all the righteous people are on, and he says, nope, I'm going to go out of my way to people who are outside of my circle, who are different than me, because that is who God has called me to reach out to. I think it's the same motivation. While God's people in Jesus' day are living their lives with their own prejudices in mind, Jesus is walking the earth with the purposes of God in his mind. Jesus is motivated by God's plan. The Apostle Paul writes about God's plan at the beginning of the book of the Ephesians. I love how the New Living Translation writes it. He says, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will, regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plans. Paul's writing to the Ephesians church, and he's saying to them, here's the inside scoop on what it is that God is doing. In Christ, he's revealed this mysterious will. The people of God have tried to guess at his will. They've tried to understand his will. What is it that God is doing? And in Christ, God's revealed it. It continues, he says, and this is the plan. You guys ready? This is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. Everything together under the authority of Christ. Other translations use the word unity. Everything into unity. In heaven and on earth, everything into unity under Christ. Everything, of course, means everyone. Everything means Jews and Samaritans who have been at odds forever, part of God's plan is to bring them together into unity under Christ. For centuries, we've got mistreatment, we've got rejection, we've got prejudice, and Jesus walks right into the hornet's nest, right into Samaria, because his plan is to redefine the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. In the next chapter, Paul writes about Christ's work. He says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace. He's made the two one, and he's torn down the dividing wall of hostility. The two that Paul's speaking of is the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, But before the gospel was preached by Christ's disciples to those who were outside of God's covenant people, Jesus Christ himself went to the ten lost tribes of Israel and proclaimed to them the truth of who he was. So that as the nations are invited into Israel to be a part of what God's doing through that nation, Israel itself could be a complete nation as the Samaritans are grafted back in. The prophets talked about that as well throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus went to Samaria to tear down a wall. He crossed ethnic and religious and social barriers to tear down a wall. He had to because the wall was there and it needed to be torn down. Now, we live in a society that's full of walls. Uh, We live in a society that's full of lines that we don't cross, often because crossing those types of lines just begs the question, why, from the people who are in our circles, right? What are you doing going over there? Why would you ever do that? Why are you hanging out with those people? I want to close today with a story about a local someone who bravely crossed into their Samaria and graciously ministered to modern-day Samaritans. My friend, Bishop Eddie Crenshaw, came to Longview around 12 years ago. He came to serve as a leader of the House of Prayer for All Nations, which is the historically African-American congregation in our community. It's actually the first church that was completed and built in the city of Longview. And, uh, um, you know, think about that fact, that the religious, the Christian pioneers of Longview were African-Americans, the first people to set up a church. Their church dates back to the founding of our city. And after being in town overseeing this congregation for a couple of years, uh, Bishop Crenshaw started reaching out to white Samaria. He showed up at one of our Kelso Longview Ministerial Association meetings. And he started coming, he showed up, and then he showed up to the next one, and he showed up to the next one, and he's probably our most one of our most faithful attenders. Uh, oftentimes, he'd be the only one in the room who was a person of color. But he'd show up to these meetings, and, and then he started doing something. After coming for a little while, I, rem- I remember he started inviting us to stuff. They'd be having this gathering or that gathering, he'd be like, man, we just... We would love to have you guys there. You should come and join us. I never went. I never went to any of them. It just it just felt uh awkward. And and although here's a person in my life who's modeling crossing the line really really well and who's extending an invitation to me, I'm nervous about stepping into unfamiliar territory. Uh, I I've I've spent very little time in my life outside of white samaria. I mean, I've spent a little bit of time, but but very little. And, and I know that we're worshiping the same God, and, and, but it still feels risky showing up, right? There's cultural differences. They have me a little bit on edge. Of course, our respective groups have our own history with each other, and that feels a little bit dicey to walk into there. I mean, I, I, our country's history of slavery and racial inequality, these are all things that make avoiding that, those invitations Easier for me, staying separate, easier, and I think easier for most of us, really. A couple of months ago, we're sitting in a meeting. Bishop invites us all to this Juneteenth celebration that they're going to throw. He says, our church, we're hosting this gathering for Juneteenth. Uh, We want to celebrate the end of slavery in our country, the end of slavery for our people, and we would love to have you there. We'd love to have you come join us. And he gives the invitation, and I'm thinking, oh, man, I don't know about that. And then he adds to the invitation an opportunity to come to the planning meeting for it. So he, he honors me with a request for help. You know what? We want to throw this party. We want you to come. We can't do it ourselves. Would you come and help us? There's nothing more empowering for me than an invitation to come and help. Okay. No, I could do that. They, they need me. I, it's nice to be needed, right? Right. So I am there. I show up at the planning meeting and, and I'm ready to help. And I'm thinking, you know, thank goodness for his persistence, right? Because he keeps showing up at this meeting, he keeps inviting people to come and join him, and, and you know, I, people aren't. But he doesn't give up. Finally, I've got one too many invitations to say no to. Finally, here I go. I show up feeling empowered. I'm able to get over my own prejudices. I just show up to the planning meeting. I have to say there's few things that I have done that have been more rewarding than the last couple of months working on planning this community event uh, to honor uh, Victoria Freeman, a historical uh, uh, civil rights character in our community, and, and to plan a celebration for Juneteenth. Yesterday we had the event Our our scavenger hunt strategically ended in the park where the event was going to be starting soon. Um, And although it was cold and windy and, uh, you know, the threat of rain was lingering over us all day, uh, my heart was just warmed throughout the entire thing by this opportunity to gather and to celebrate Juneteenth in a diverse community setting. It was especially impactful to celebrate the end of slavery with the people whose ancestors had been enslaved. That's a different kind of celebration than those of us who are, you know, on the other side of the coin get to have. It was an incredible honor to be a part of it, to be a guest at this event. I'm so grateful that just like Jesus, compelled by the Spirit, my friend Bishop went into Samaria. He had to. He was compelled by the same spirit to enter my world that that he might have had a million reasons to not show up. But I'm telling you, the true disciples of Jesus go. They have to go where Jesus is going. If Bishop can come to our Samaria and proclaim the gospel that in Christ, God is reconciling everything in heaven and on earth, that the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down, if he can embody That message of the gospel in my life so effectively, across our own cultural barriers, I I, I do wonder. it, It kind of puts the question then in my core. Okay, how do the Samaritans respond to the truth of God when it invades their world? Jesus ends up at Jacob's well. He meets a Samaritan woman. We'll talk about it in the fall, I guess. But The story ends with this woman going into her hometown and testifying that Jesus is the Messiah. Which in John's gospel, this is the first person to go and evangelize on, on behalf of the gospel. A Samaritan woman going into her, to, into her community. And John says they, they come out and many of them became believers in Jesus that day. Those who were once far away are brought in close. Those of you who have read the gospels know that this isn't always the case when Jesus shows up in a town or shows up in a village. Especially when it's His own people. Many times he's met with resistance. He's met with people with little faith. He's met with people who don't seem to care about the truth of his message. And I would imagine that throughout our own lives, many of us have have met Jesus Christ in different ways, in different places. We've been met at the well by Jesus. Maybe it's some kind of supernatural experience we have where the living God is invading our reality with the reality of his presence. Probably more often than that, though, it's God working, Jesus working through somebody in our lives. Maybe a parent, maybe a co-worker. Maybe it's Jesus working through Bishop Eddie Crenshaw of the House of Prayer for All Nations. But the truth gets poured into our lives, and we are reminded that we are in. We're back in. Does that truth leave us changed? Does it leave us changed enough To go to wherever our Samaria is. To cross whatever lines he is calling us to cross. A gospel of reconciliation is no gospel of reconciliation if it's only ever preached to people who we already see as just like us, in just like us. Reconciliation, the concept necessitates some kind of break, some kind of rupture, some kind of conflict. How do we respond to Jesus crossing into Samaria. I guess that's the part of the story that God is inviting us to write with him as we move forward in this story together.